Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. It was the summer before my freshman year of college. My brother John and I were living in a small house in Keene, Texas, both working construction, trying to earn some money for school and such things. We were two single young men living in a small house. I'm sure it smelled fairly ripe. But it also didn't have a whole lot of food. You open the cabinets and a couple boxes of cereal was pretty much the extent of it. I have memories of my brother John going into the kitchen and opening the cabinet and kind of standing there quietly looking at the cabinet for a minute. And then finally saying, well, I guess I'll have cereal for a change. (laughs) So one week when somebody invited us to their home for Sabbath lunch after church, we were like, giddy up, we'll be there. And we were happy, we were excited about that. And then a day or so later in the week, somebody else invited us home for Sabbath lunch. And before I could say anything, John was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, we'd love to do that. And he was almost like, just watch and learn. And so he told the first people, he said, now, now we've got an engagement. We won't be able to stay very long. We'll be there and we'll eat, but we're going to have to slip out right away. And he told the second family, now we're going to be a little late because we have another engagement. You go ahead, don't wait on us, but we'll be there. We're definitely coming. And that's what we did. It was a wonderful meal at the first place. We took it in. We ate and enjoyed it immensely. We're so sorry. We got to slip out. On to the next place. Walked in. Sorry we're late. And we sat down and another wonderful meal. I, I mean, I didn't, don't remember feeling all that well that afternoon, but, but it had been great food. That afternoon was one of those afternoons where you say, I'm not going to be hungry till Tuesday. There is no way. But Sunday morning, you know what it was? Well, I guess I'll have cereal for a change. <laughs> While we may not have used these terms at that time, the truth is, We were very dependent on the hospitality of good people. Just like many kids on this campus and in these dorms still are today. But I've also come to realize that that term hospitality, Christian hospitality, while that certainly is an example of it, is much broader than just that. That's what we're looking at in this series, Insiders and Outsiders, a series that's considering the polarization that exists in our world, the fractured condition of things, and is asking the question, is it possible, is it possible that Christ followers can make a profound difference by the practice of Christian hospitality? I want to set the table by reading just two paragraphs from Scott Cormode's book, again, The Innovative Church. These got me to thinking. So listen to what he writes. 
In the New Testament, Jesus practices hospitality and receives hospitality. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Accepting their hospitality was not just about sharing a meal. It was a way of identifying with them and making them a part of his community, a point the Pharisees both understood and reviled. Luke 9 is a particularly interesting passage for understanding what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples about hospitality. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out the 12 without provisions. He purposely asked them to rely on the hospitality of others. When we Christians, especially those of us with economic power, read the passage, we focus on the message that the disciples carried. But Jesus intentionally put the powerful message in the hands of powerless people. He made them dependent. That is what Jesus did in the incarnation. When we carry the gospel to our neighbors, it's easy to let our own comfort get in the way. Scott continues, in the same chapter of Luke, right after the disciples return, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000, another act of hospitality. The crowds have overstayed their welcome in a deserted area, and the disciples want to send them away. Jesus tells the disciples to feed these strangers, to treat them as if they are insiders or part of Jesus' crew. The command to provide hospitality makes no sense to the disciples, so Jesus feeds the outsiders. The disciples are so burdened by their limitations that they do not see the obligation and opportunity they have to extend their privilege to those outside the band. Jesus wants the disciples to treat the 5,000 outsiders like they are insiders in his chosen band. So with that on the table, those two paragraphs that got my mind spinning about Luke 9, we're going to turn to Luke 9. Now, we're going to read a passage that really has three distinct sections to it. The first section is about mission. Jesus is sending his disciples on a mission, but involved in the success of that mission is hospitality. The third section is about ministry. Jesus is going to involve his disciples in ministry, but that too has to do with hospitality. And then the middle section is a rather odd insertion, three verses long, of Luke writing about Herod the ruler. And as you read this section, you're tempted to think, what, 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 what's Herod doing in here? This is about mission and ministry. We can't say for sure, but it may be because Luke is talking about Herod's curiosity. When you see people deeply engaged in mission, deeply involved in ministry, Herod is always lurking. Who is Herod? I'm just curious. Like to see what's happening. I don't, no, no, I, don't, I don't want to get involved. Just curious. So let's read. Read the first and the section, second pieces. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. 
Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Mission. Curiosity. As Luke writes his gospel, there is a question that sometimes gets asked pointedly and sometimes is implied. That's a core question to Luke's gospel. And that question is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Just who is he? Jesus is answering that question in his ministry and in his miracles. But he realizes that the sand in the hourglass of his life is running out. You say, we're only in Luke 9. True. But before this chapter ends, down in verse 51, Luke tells us that Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem for his final journey. He's on his final journey. He has a destiny at the cross. And he's about to head in that direction. So the urgency is building. He realizes, I have to get this message out much more widely. And so he calls the disciples and he says, I have a mission for you. And then he gives them instructions about the mission. He, he says essentially two things. The first thing he says is, travel light. Travel light. Don't take an extra... A bag, don't take bread, don't take money, extra certain, none of that. Travel light because this is an urgent mission. You're going to have to trust in God to be with you. Our time is running out. Travel light and, Jesus says, you're going to be dependent on the hospitality of strangers. I, I don't know if you find that stunning the way I find that stunning. Because what's happening here is Jesus is trying to save the planet. And he sends his emissaries out, says you're going to have to depend on the fact that God will act to care for you through the hospitality of others. Travel light. Second thing he says is stay focused. Stay focused. When you get to a house that you can stay and stay there, don't go to anywhere else. You think, what, what's Jesus saying? I think what Jesus is saying is, look, when you find a place to lodge, lodge there and get busy with your mission. Don't spend your time looking around to see is there a better place, a better hotel, a bigger house, a more beautiful garden, a more wealthy patron. None of that. This is not vacation. This is mission. So when you get there and you find a place, that's your base of operation. Get with it. And then, if they won't hear you, and then Jesus gives them a formal act of separation known in the world of his day, say, I'm done here, I'm moving on to the next place because I'm traveling light and I'm staying focused. It's urgent to get this mes message out, and we're going to have to depend on hospitable people to do so. I just find that stunning. That's what it's going to take. I mean, we live in a different world, right? Got hotels, rental cars, Airbnbs. I mean, who needs hospitality these days? 
And furthermore, the truth is, I think as hard for some as it is to offer hospitality, I think it's actually possible that it's harder to be dependent on hospitality, to depend on others. Some of you are at that place right now. You're living with a family that's been gracious enough to give you hospitality. Some of you have boomeranged back to mom's and dad's house. Hmm. Hospitality. Hey, please, take out the trash. Come down and eat. Engage with them. Hospitality. It's hard to be dependent on hospitality. That's the very place Jesus places his disciples. So I was dependent on hospitality. I was dependent on it. When I got to Andrews as a as a new seminary student, I was coming from Keene, Texas. College was small. I knew everybody in the town. I lived there some when I was a kid and some when I was an adult. I mean, Keene isn't that big a place. Both city limits, signs on the same pole. Psh, you're in, psh, you're out. I knew everybody there. I felt at home. I loved that place. And then I got to Andrews. This was like, wow. This place is big and this place is cold and I don't know anybody. And I'd rather stay in my dorm room because I don't want to be out there trying to connect. It must have been written on my face. Because after, I don't remember if it was two or three days or a year or something like that, but after a while, this guy around campus saw me. He said, hey, gave me his name. Come on. You're going to be with me. You're going to be on our flag ball team. we got a team. We need you. And, and th these are my friends right here. Join us in whatever way. He just drew me in to the embrace of that community. And then, as November arrived, in that holiday that every dorm student dreads, when everybody else goes home for Thanksgiving, and you're stuck alone in the dorm, he said, you're coming to our house for Thanksgiving. Yeah, no, 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 you just, just come, just come. Three, four-hour drive, we'll be there. You can spend it with our family. And thus it was that I was swept up into the embrace of a community on which, honestly, I was very dependent. His name is Tim Evans, a member of our community here. Sometimes I still think of that, Tim, wherever you are, with deep gratitude, being at the mercy of someone else's hospitality. It's where Jesus put his disciples. So Christian hospitality has two facets to it. It's take and give. That's Christian hospitality, take and give. The first aspect of Christian hospitality is take what God gives, receive what God gives, and recognize that he often gives it through other people. You may be the other people today needing to take what God gives and get ready for the second step. But that's the first step. Take what God gives. And then we move to the third section of the passage, which is the second element in hospitality. Luke chapter 9. Back to Luke 9. It's very interesting how this transpires. Because an amazingly generous act of hospitality takes place growing out of an interruption. Now, I'm going to guess that you're kind of like me and you don't enjoy being interrupted. I'm not talking about conversation. I'm talking about when you're in the middle of a project, you have your eye set, your eye on the clock. i got to get this done. This is what's important. And then you get interrupted. It's tough. 
But that's exactly what happened with Jesus. So what does he do? Luke 9, starting with verse 10. When the apostles returned, okay, so they're back now from their mission. When they returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. So get the picture. These are the insiders. This is Jesus and the 12. He can see it etched into the lines around their eyes, the redness in their eyes. They're tired, they're weary, but he can also see in the bounce in their step, they're excited. They need to process this. He needs to disciple them more deeply. He looks around at the crowd and he says to them, we, we, we got to get away. I need time with you. So they withdraw, says the text. They withdraw to Bethsaida, probably across the lake, to a small area. Maybe they went into a house, shut themselves off. This is the inside group, Jesus and the 12. This is going to be special time. And then they start to hear it. The noise outside, building into a dull roar, the pounding on the door, shh, don't, they don't know we're here. That's not Jesus. Notice what happens, verse 11, but the crowd learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. He welcomed them. I love the sense of that Greek word. Here's the sense of that word welcome. He took them into his hands. He took them into his own hands and listened to them and taught them and healed them and cared for them and ultimately fed them. He welcomed them. But when you have that kind of treatment, when you're listening to that kind of teaching, those words falling from the lips of the Nazarene, you lose all track of time. And it's not long before the disciples come to Jesus and say, you've you got to get these. You've got to send them away. Send them somewhere. I don't, we, you got, they're hungry. They're going to faint on the way. I mean, there's Olive Garden that way. And I don't know what's that way, but send them somewhere. We can't do And G, you know what Jesus says to them? Listen to this. Verse 13, he, say, he replied, you give them something to eat. What are you talking about? You give them something to eat. That's our introduction to the second part of Christian hospitality. It's take and give. Christian hospitality is taking what God gives and then giving what God gave. That's Christian hospitality. Taking what God gives and then giving what God gave. It's take and give. So Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Well, they have something to say about that. Verse 13b, they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy 
food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. We don't have anything to give. And by the time it's done, there's such an abundance that there are all kinds of leftovers. Because when you're taking what God gives, you will have an abundance in giving what God gave. That's Christian hospitality. It's involved first in mission, and then it's involved in ministry. And it requires something of us. It requires humility and selflessness. In, in terms of Christian hospitality and what God does for us, it requires humility because we can never say, I'm self-sufficient, I got it covered, I don't need God, I don't need anyone. Not true. And sometimes life brings us to those places that break us so deeply that we realize it's not true. I need something, someone, God. It requires humility, and it requires selflessness. It requires the willingness to take what we've been given and to give it to others, to break out of our comfort zones, of our protected, protective pods, of our little enclaves, and to find those who need to receive what God has given. So what exactly has God given because hospitality may look very different in different circumstances today. It may look different in the world we live in from the world in which Jesus lived. So what did God give? It's worth lingering on the word incarnation. Incarnation. God wrapped himself in human flesh stepped down the starry stair steps of the sky, was born as a babe in a manger, and gave himself to us while we were in the state of a fractured relationship with God. That's when he did it. Incarnation. For God so loved the world that Greek word is cosmos, the world. It's a, it's, a, it's a word of significance in the Gospel of John where it appears. The cosmos in John's Gospel is not the world in all of its perfection that spun pristine and pure from the Creator's hand. That's not the cosmos in John. The cosmos in John is the ruptured world, the fractured planet, the planet in rebellion, the planet that's filled with anger and strife and violence and bigotry and rape and hatred and murder. That's the planet. And yet the text says, for God so loved the cosmos. That's what he did for us. Christian hospitality, we receive what God gives. And then we give what God gave. So let me ask you a question. Where might that need to happen in your life this week? 
to take the riches, the abundance that you've received and now give it. Maybe it's with that immigrant family in your neighborhood. They've moved in. They look different from others. Unusual customs and habits. Broken English. You've noticed that nobody stops in to their house. Maybe this week is the time to go knock on the door. We'd like you to come to our house. We'd like to eat with you, to get to know you, to welcome you to the neighborhood. Does it begin there? Or maybe it's that boisterous teenager. You and your spouse say boisterous when the kids are around. When the kids aren't around, you say, I hate that kid. That kid's always in trouble. I can't stand being. Maybe that's where you start. You buy an extra ticket to Disneyland when you go. Take him with you. Just think of that. A whole day in Disneyland of praying to Jesus for patience. It'll deepen your walk with God. <laughs> Invite him to come along. Give some of what you've been given. Or maybe it will be that person who sees sexuality and gender so differently than you do. Is this week the time to say, could we have a cup of tea? I, I just would like to listen to your story. And then practice the discipline of not having the last word. Just listen. Or maybe it's the Republican at the office with the bumper stickers on the wall and the pictures, and, and you're ready to go in there and give them a few words. Instead, take a loaf of bread. Say, it's good to see you today. Or maybe it's your Democrat neighbor who's always spewing off and riling you up, and you're lashing back. Maybe this week, instead of lashing back, you just smile. and Can you imagine this? At the end of what they say, you just smile and say, thank you for sharing. <laughs> what if we did the unexpected and we did it because God has done it for us? And so we take what God gives and we give what God gave. Do you suppose that a group of Christ followers in Loma Linda, California, might actually be able to step into the polarized space and start to heal our relationships? Eugene Peterson, who paraphrased Scripture in the volume that's called The Message, the late Eugene Peterson, I should say, Tremendous author. At times, people ask the question, if you were stuck on a desert island and only had five books, what five books would those be? To me, it would be the Bible, the Desire of Ages, and two Peterson books, The Jesus Way and Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, and then a book to teach me how to build a ship to get off that island. So Peterson, in a book called The Pastor, writes his life story, particularly from the perspective of pastoral ministry. And he comes at a point in his book to describing in his youth, knowing that this young woman named Jan had captured his heart. The time had come to go over and have a conversation with her father. And any of you who have done that knows how that feels. He describes Jan's home and their grace and their goodness. And then I want you to hear it in his words. 
He says, that was the home I entered on a Thursday evening in February of 1958 to ask for permission and a blessing to Mary Jan. I rang the doorbell. Jan's father opened the door, surprised to see me. Jan isn't here. She's at choir practice. Y yes, I know she's not here. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Well, come in and sit down. We sat side by side on the sofa. <laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> we sat side by side on the sofa. I didn't know how to do this. He made small talk, then silence, and then, tell me why you're here, Eugene. These are his words. I, well, what I wanted to, I mean, well, I mean, it's this way. I, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Eugene, you don't have to go through this. Let's have coffee. He rescued me. This is Peterson's words. He rescued me. An act of hospitality. I never did have to ask him. Over coffee, we were able to have an easy conversation in which he gave both permission and blessing. No interrogation, no conditions. Welcome to the family. What do you think might happen if we did that? Welcome to the family. But Randy, there are issues to be addressed, questions to be answered, problems to be worked out, theology to understand. You're right. Yes, 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 and yes. Absolutely true. But what if we did that in the context of family on the journey? What if we took an attitude that said, this will not undo us? Because we're family, bound together by the love of Jesus, purchased by the blood of Calvary, welcomed into his family and into his embrace before we ever could hope to deserve it. And he's working that out in us all along the way. What if that was our perspective, our posture? What if we realize that Christian hospitality is take and give, take and give, take and give. Take what God gives and give what God gave. So it just leaves me wondering. I just wonder where that person is this week, this week, where that person is in your life, in my life. That person into whose eyes we need to look and to whom we need to say, welcome to the family. Gracious God, there's so many questions that remain. But God, never let us forget that you drew us in before we had any hope. Let me never forget 
that when my inner life was fractured, you drew me to yourself and made me part of the family. Lord, teach us to be hospitable. Teach us to practice Christian hospitality. Take and give. Taking what you give and giving what you gave. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.